Russia. And the best advice that I think I've heard uh, was, was by a history professor at Bethel University, my alma mater. Um, and he was, he was interviewed on the local news up there in the Twin Cities. And he said that, that while this is a complex situation and things are unfolding so quickly, it's hard to even begin to, to get our heads wrapped around what's going on. He said, if there's one thing that we should be focused on, it is the lives of the real people that are being impacted. And so, you know, I think about, like, I was listening to the radio the other day, and, and they were interviewing a woman from Ukraine who lives in Canada who has a lot of family that live in the capital city, and she was talking about how she is fearing for their safety, how some of them had tried to get out and got stuck in traffic and had to go back home. And yesterday I read an article about a couple from Texas that had traveled to Ukraine um, because they were adopting a little boy uh, who had been in an orphanage and needed serious medical attention. And so uh, they were able to, to pick him up and head to the airport. And it was in the midst of all of that that fighting began, and they almost didn't get out. And thankfully, they're safe, but they were stuck for several additional days. Um, I talked to, to Doug, who's in this service, his, his daughter's neighbor, has a foreign exchange student in their lives from Ukraine. Uh, my Facebook feed, if I look at it, is peppered with pastors and friends who have missionaries and other clergy that are in these places, some who are fleeing, others who have chosen to stay and fight, others who have chosen to, to, to try to serve those who are hurt. And, and so the, the bottom line with, from this professor was that these are real people. <laughs> And while we may not be able to comprehend all of the details, we can painfully imagine what it might be like to be in their shoes. And it's out of that place that I think we are called to stand alongside them in prayer. And so I'd like to invite you to join me now in a prayer. Um, it's a prayer that was written by a ministry called 24-7 Prayer. They're an international prayer ministry based out of the UK. We actually uh, used their material to, to learn about prayer this last year. We did a prayer series, and uh, they put out this prayer, and, and there are several petitions. And so I'll read the petitions, and then at the end, the response is that I'll say, Lord, in your mercy, and you can respond with the words, hear our prayer. And so would you join me together now as we pray? Father God, King of all nations, we cry out to you now for the people of Ukraine. We ask you to rescue those who are vulnerable from the hands of their enemies, that they might live without fear before you all their days. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord of lords and prince of peace, our politicians are predicting the biggest war in Europe since 1945. And we simply cry out to you urgently to write a different story in our time. Thwart the dark evil of evil men. Give wisdom beyond human wisdom to peacemakers seeking an equitable and less violent way. May politicians exercise the wisdom from above which is peaceable, gentle, willing to yield and full of mercy. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, we pray for the church in Ukraine. Ukraine is a nation in which 70% of the population call themselves Christian. 
Give our many brothers and sisters in that nation courage in this crisis that they might proclaim the good news of your kingdom, bind up broken hearts, and bring comfort to all who mourn. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. You, Lord, make wars cease to the end of the earth. You break bows, you shatter spears, and you burn shields with fire. And so we ask you now to save the lives of many people in Ukraine. Make a peace that is strong and not weak. De-escalate this crisis. We hear of wars and rumors of wars, but you are Lord. You are our rock, our fortress, and our deliverer. Our hope is in you. And so we address the nations now. In the name of Jesus, we say, be still and know God. He is exalted among the nations. He shall be exalted in the earth. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Lord God, we do pray that you would hear our prayer, and we know that you always do. We pray it on behalf of those who are crying out to you, coming alongside them. And Lord, we turn our prayers for those of us who are gathered here. As we open up your word, we pray that your spirit's presence would make himself known, that you might speak to us in these words, change us, help us to become more like you, and for you to become an even greater part of our lives as we have gathered here in this place in this time, in your honor, in your presence, to change and grow in you. It is in your name we pray. Amen. This time I'd like to invite you to open up your Bible if you... Um, if you brought one with you, open up to John chapter 3. If uh, you didn't bring one with you, there's one in front of you, and we'd love to give it to you as a gift. And so I encourage you, no matter what, you don't have an excuse, open it up. Um, if you're at home, take out whatever Bible you might have around. And we are going to begin in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. John chapter 3, beginning at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon and Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, you know, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I am, I am especially grateful that I get to be with you this morning. Um, I spent much of the week just outside of San Antonio, Texas. I was at a Presbyterian camp called Mo Ranch. Uh, there's, there's a couple, there's a picture of my bald head. 
and then there's a picture of, of another place. <laughs> um, it's, it is about an hour and a half outside of San Antonio, and I was there with 40-plus Lutheran pastors, some of their spouses. Uh, we had traveled from all pl- different places around the country. Um, we're in this cohort of people that are learning about holistic formation. Um, and and it's, it's an effort for us to be able to learn what we can then extend to you, to other pastors. Um, just as we look, I know Jennifer, our musician, and I, we were talking this morning just about just how, how burned out so many of us are in life right now. And so uh, we're trying to learn the way in which the rhythms of God help speak to that. And so it was easy to do that the first day that we were there um, because that was the same day you guys experienced ice storms. <laughs> And when I was in Texas, it was 83 degrees. (laughs) I took that picture. But the next day, the temperature dropped into the 20s, and they got ice. And I have to tell you, the Texans are not as experienced with ice as those of us that came from the northern Midwest. We felt like sages there because we knew what we were doing, but they don't have the things we have here. They don't have salts and that sort of thing. And so, so there were all sorts of airport delays, especially people that had to fly out of Dallas. And, and so I am, I'm really just grateful that I got home and I get to be here with you today. Um, but when I was there, and, and you look at that picture, I couldn't help but think about the season of the church that we're just about to enter into this Wednesday, the season of Lent. And it begins this Wednesday with Ash Wednesday and launches us into a 40-day journey, 40 days plus Sundays, um, that take us on the journey Jesus takes to the cross and beyond the grave on Easter. And every year, the church calendar gives us this same period of time to recalibrate our faith. And I don't know about you, but I need some recalibrating this year. Am I alone? Anybody else? Can anybody else? Okay, good. Just want to make sure that I'm not the only one. And so what we do is is we're going to turn today to a figure that we we traditionally turn to by next week, uh, who is in the background at the beginning of Lent. That is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. And it fits in really well with what we've been talking about throughout the, the first part of 2022, the series that we've been calling Emotional Faith. We've been learning about how our emotions and our feelings are not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, God wired us to experience them, and they tell us something about the emotions of God. They also can draw us into a deeper understanding about ourselves. And then last week in Psalm 139, we learned that as much as we can learn about ourselves through these things, there's always going to be a limitation because only God knows everything. And he knows infinitely more about you than you will ever understand about yourself. There's things God knows that are too wonderful for you to know about you. And so that was last week. And then today, we're wrapping up this series by looking ahead to the season of Lent and following an example of someone who knew himself well who knew himself arguably better than any of us do, and knew God even more. And by living out that truth, he set out to do what we set out to do, and that is to make Jesus greater. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. But a little history first is going to be helpful. Uh, Our Bibles are divided into two sections. And I know those of you online, you can't hear me. Maybe you can type in the answer in the comments. But those of you that are here, what are the two sections? Just, Just yell it out. 
Old and New Testament. Now, I learned in seminary, one of my professors used to say, I don't like those terms, and I agree with that, because it sounds like old and new, it's like irrelevant and outdated, and then new is like relevant, but that's really not the way it is. They're both relevant, and maybe a better way to think of it is the first section and the second section, the first testament and the second testament, because both Testaments are a revelation of the progression of God's story of salvation in our world. Uh, But we have two sections, and between those two sections, there was a 400-year period where God was silent. He didn't speak, and, and we've all experienced seasons like that where we don't hear the voice of God. And it doesn't mean that God isn't there, but yet at the same time, not receiving a prophecy, not hearing a voice or a word, 400 years is a long time. It's a really long time. It's generations. And so these people that were seeking the presence of God, they watched and they waited and they waited. And what do you do when you're watching and you're waiting? You're having people over to your house maybe after church today. What what do you do when you're watching and you're waiting. I know for me, I'm usually like running around like these guys can attest to it. Sometimes I'm making sure like, oh, oh, that's not quite like straight, right? Like, does anybody else do that? Run around your house, right? You got your, your little paths. That's the place where you got to replace the carpet the soonest, right? Because you just kind of move around. Well, well, think about that times a thousand. 400 years is a really long time. And so an entire market had formed in, in, in the ancient Middle East for people that were anxiously waiting for God. And religious leaders came up with all sorts of, of things that people could do and buy to prepare for when he finally did. Sacrifices and offerings and purification rituals. And one of these purification rituals was to go out and find a stream or a river that was deep enough that you could be fully submerged and someone would baptize you. I mean, this doesn't sound like anything novel, but, but this is what they did, that they would baptize you in the water as an act of purification so that you were clean. And specifically what we're going to see is it's so that you were clean when the long-awaited Messiah that the old First Testament spoke of finally comes. Now, it's 2,000 years later. We know that the long-awaited Messiah is Jesus. We're waiting for him to come back. But he had a cousin the first time around, and, and his cousin's name is John, John the Baptist. And John was doing these purification ritual baptisms. But more than a baptism, John the Baptist was the first prophet to speak for God in over 400 years. And so you can imagine how many people were coming to hear what he had to say and to experience what he was inviting them into. And so we're going to read about that. Look at Matthew chapter 3. This is the beginning of John's earthly ministry. Verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John was preparing the way. 
And then he explains specifically what that is going to look like. Verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then verses 11 and 12 begin to refer to something that we're going to get into in greater depth throughout our Lenten series that we're going to start next week as we're going to go through the Old Testament book of Ruth. And so be sure to join us on Wednesday. Also join us on Sunday as we get into that. But briefly, John describes baptism that he's offering as merely the preparation for a different baptism that is to come. Not just one of water, but one of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And then he describes what this is going to do, and he compares it to the wheat harvest. So look at verse 12. He says, he says, his, the one who's coming, Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now what is this? Well, what it is, is John is saying that, that his baptism is just preparation. It is for those that are anxiously waiting for the guest of honor to arrive. When the Messiah comes, he is going to recalibrate our hearts. Like harvesting wheat, it requires separating the good grain from everything else. This Messiah is going to come, and through this baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire, he is going to remove what is bad, and he is going to burn it up with an unquenchable fire, leaving only what is good. That's what the Messiah has come to do. And so we fast forward to our reading in John 3, and Jesus the Messiah is here. John has baptized him. We are past the point where he's been in the wilderness for 40 days and fasting, and God is preparing him for his earthly ministry. Jesus and his disciples have people coming to them. John and his disciples are still doing their preparation baptism, and there's this moment where there's an overlap between the two's ministry. Now, remember, purification baptism is not an original idea to John. And so, so some of Jesus' disciples have begun to practice this as well. And over time, what ended up happening is more and more people started to go to Jesus and his disciples, and less and less people were following John and his followers. And again, verse 25, this is what happened. It says, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter over the matter of ceremonial washing they came to John and they said to him rabbi that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan you know the one that you testified about look he's baptizing and everyone is going to him now can you hear the envy in their voices I mean, I have five kids, right? I hear this kind of message all the time. That's not fair. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing in between the lines. They said, that man who was with you. You know, you know, John, remember the one that you baptized? You know, remember the one that you're talking about? You know, the one that, that, that you, you know, you, 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 you. Look, everybody's going to him now as if to say that without John, Jesus would be nothing. 
I mean, notice they don't even refer to him by name. And it kind of makes sense, right? Coming from the people who've left everything to follow John. Makes me think of, um, most of you know, one of my hobbies is being a geek. Now, if my kids were in the room, they would say that's your personality. But it's not just that. I like technology, too. So it kind of fits. And I remember my, my love for geeky things, technology. It all started back when, when I was real little. My dad had to purchase a computer for work, and so he, he bought it and he brought it home, and, and it was this monstrosity. Some of you remember this, right? Remember how big computers used to be? Like big, heavy monitor, and then you had a separate CPU that sat next to it, and then you had the, the, the printer that was next to that, and it was, it was a big printer, right? It was one of those kind of printers that, that required uh, feeding the paper through the bottom. It sat in a box and went... Remember the sound, right? Right, all those things. Like, like he, he brought all this on the mechanical keyboard, I think was bigger than my laptop is right now. Like all of this. And all of it had to be shoved on the small built-in desk in our kitchen that clearly was not designed for that. And, and ever since then, I have loved technology. I, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. And so as I grew up, I was an early adopter. I remember asking for an MP3 player for Christmas at one point. I think it was in high school at the time. This is before the iPod was invented, right? So now we know, you know, Spotify, all that kind of stuff. Like, this is back when everybody still had CDs, and some people even had those, those crazy cassette tape things, you know, that you had to rewind and fast forward. I had an MP3 player. I saved my money after that. I bought myself a Palm Pilot I am a geek. <laughs> Any high schooler or college student that bought a Palm Pilot, I didn't need a Palm Pilot. But that was the predecessor to our smartphones, right? I had a BlackBerry after that as well. And as, as much fun as it is to play with all of these things, one of the downsides to investing in them, especially when you're on such a limited budget as I always have been in that area, is that I was always reluctant to give up whatever I bought for the next thing because I just spent a lot of money on that thing, right? I can't afford to keep trading it up. And, and as much as, as, as I like these new things, even though I'm a geek today, I like to read about things, but I tend not to get it up my cell phone or my laptop or whatever I have until it is well past its useful life. And so I think about that, and I think about John, and I think about John's disciples, and I think, you know, they're kind of like the early adopters of Jesus' day, right? They, they had invested in John's ministry, something new was going on. And they left everything to follow him. And they watched everyone want to come and be baptized by John. He was cool. And it was cool to be associated with him, which makes it that much harder when you start to watch all of these people, some of these people, the same people that you've been ministering to, now they're going across the river and following Jesus. These are the same people that John used to attract. And you think about it, like these guys, these disciples, they look at it and they say, even Jesus was an early adopter of John, <laughs> right? Even Jesus came and was baptized by John before he went off and prepared for his earthly ministry. And so they're like, what's going on? And John replies in verse 27, he says to them, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. John has one purpose, 
And he has one purpose only, and that is to prepare for the one to come. He is not the destination. Instead, he goes on to compare himself to the best man at a wedding. Look at this, verse 29. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. A fr- the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He, that being Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. Now I'll tell you as a pastor or just as somebody who's attending a wedding, of every moment in a wedding, Every moment in a wedding ceremony, the part that gets me every time, and it doesn't matter how many times I've been to a wedding or I've officiated a wedding, the part that gets me every time is that moment when the bride walks through those doors. And, and when we have a, a wedding here at St. John's, it's beautiful because we actually we, we cover the doors. And so all you see is the silhouette of the bride and the person that's walking her down the aisle. And the doors open, and she looks at her future spouse, and her future spouse looks, and I catch him if he falls. You know, that kind of, like, like but, you know, I, I probably wouldn't because I'm, like, caught up in the moment. Like, it never gets old. It is the most powerful moment in the surface every single time. So just imagine, because we've all been to a wedding, right? Imagine at that moment the best man getting up and interrupting, and making it about themselves. And, and, and I think about, like, like, I think it was the last time I was in a wedding, or at least I was the best man at a wedding. It was my brother's wedding. Um, I was the best man, and I remember I had the responsibility of carrying the rings, because that's one of the jobs, right, when you're the best man. And I remember being so nervous. I didn't officiate his wedding. I had no job, and I was more nervous about that than I have been probably about any wedding that I had to officiate. And it wasn't because I had a lot to do. It was because I wanted to make sure I didn't mess up the one small thing that I was supposed to do. Because I didn't want to call attention to myself because it's not my wedding. And I would call attention to myself if I forgot to put the rings in my pocket, right? Or if I took them out and I dropped it on the ground and it rolled down the aisle or or something like that. Like I'm picturing all of these things and so I'm like, you know, and then you stand back, right? Because you don't want to call attention to yourself. So just imagine if you're the the, the maid of honor, you're you're the best man and the music is playing and you got this beautiful quartet. They had a beautiful quartet at their wedding. And imagine everybody's tearing up, smiles on their faces. They're watching the bride come down the aisle and you stand up and you say, hey, what about me? (laughs) Not even like you're opposing the wedding. You just want it to be about you. There's a term for someone like that. You know what that's called? A wedding crasher. (laughs) It's a wedding crasher. And maybe that's a movie premise (laughs) that sells a lot of tickets in the box office. But in real life, it's absurd, right? Nobody does that. And so the only way that these early adopters following John would think to do such a thing here is if they don't realize they're caught up in a wedding to begin with. See, they don't even realize that they're caught up in a wedding ceremony. And that's why John explains it to them this way. John says, hey, here's what's going on, right? These are not two competing ministries. John says, I've come to prepare even my own followers for a wedding, And the best part is it's their wedding. (laughs) 
John is the best man. Jesus is the groom. Guess who gets to be the bride? You and John's followers and Jesus' followers and every person who ever walks the face of the earth and is born again in him. We see two stories on the, bo- the front end and the back end of this. We don't have time to get into it, but the one at the front end is, is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee, and he's trying to comprehend all of what's going on. And he comes to Jesus, and, and, and Jesus says that you have to be born again, born of God. And, and, and then the gospel writer explains exactly what Jesus means and what he had come to do. In John 3, 16, you may have heard this verse before. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. See, here's the limitation here. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. And repentance is good. We are going to repent this Wednesday. When we come together for Ash Wednesday, it is, it is one of the most somber but also one of the most meaningful services because we all have things to repent of. This baptism of John's was a baptism of repentance, and it is powerful, and it is important, but it is also not enough. It is not enough because I know that every single person who came to John to be baptized to ask God to forgive them of their sins, to turn around. That's what it means to repent. Every single person who went into the water of the river and came out the other side left and sinned again. (laughs) Every single one of them except one, and that is Jesus. And that's because Jesus is the groom. And he came to rescue the bride. And if you don't believe that, God isn't condemning you. You're already condemned because you have chosen to walk away from the groom at your wedding. Or put another way, you're crashing your own wedding by not receiving the one who came to save you. And so don't crash your own wedding. C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Let me say that again. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Why do we think of ourselves less? So that we can think of Jesus more. And John came to prepare the world and us to receive more of Jesus. And I need more of Jesus. And Ukraine needs more of Jesus. And Russia needs more of Jesus. And NATO needs more of Jesus. And the American government needs more of Jesus. And Elkhorn needs more of Jesus. And the DeGroote household needs more of Jesus. You need more of Jesus. The world needs more of Jesus. And the way that begins is by asking What in this world needs to be separated out? What in my world needs to be separated out so that Jesus can become greater and I can become less? And that is the question that we ask in the season of Lent. And we're going to tangibly ask that question this Wednesday. In this service of somber repentance and hope, 
And if you've never been to an Ash Wednesday service here at St. John's, it's very simple. You're going to literally write out your sins on a sheet of paper. You're going to write out the things you've been carrying, the guilt and the shame, the things you need to repent of. You're going to write it on a sheet of paper, and you can be as brutally honest as you want because you're going to bring it forward. We're going to remind you of God's word that says that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then we're going to burn those sins. Nobody's ever going to see them because right before your eyes, you're going to see them burned under the shadow of an empty cross. And the reason that we do that is to remind ourselves that because Jesus rose from that cross, so will you. That while we are dust and to dust we shall return because of Jesus, this dust becomes a bride, beautifully redeemed. And that is the story of Ruth. And that's the story that was foretelling the story of Jesus. And it's the story that we're going to talk about as we journey to the cross and beyond with him. And so this sermon doesn't resolve, but it ends with an invitation for you to continue the journey of being less of yourself to make more room for him. And I'd like to invite you to join us now as we do that in prayer. Lord Jesus, Thank you that you are all that we need, that you are everything that this world needs, and that you are with us always until the very end of the age. You said, do not worry. In this world, there will be trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I know that we need to be reminded today that you have overcome the world and the things that are too complex, too wonderful for us to understand. But we also need to be reminded that the way in which you are made more of in this world, on this side of heaven, is for us to tangibly come before you and say, what part of me needs to be made less that Jesus might be more. That for us, we might not be competing with another baptism that's happening on another side of the river, but there are constantly things that are competing for our allegiance and our love and our time. Things that get in the way of making much of you. And so God, I just pray that you would bring those things to our minds to the surface of our hearts, that we might be like those early disciples of John and those early disciples of Jesus that were drawn to the mystery that God, who had been silent for so long, is speaking again and drawing us into the wilderness that we might find a presence that is beyond anything we can find on this side of heaven, that heaven has come to earth, that the presence of God is in and with us. And so help us make room for him. Bring to our minds even now the things that we're going to bring to your altar this Wednesday. That we might bring things before you that have been such a heavy weight to bear. And that as we watch them burn, that we might be reminded of your word that says that our sin, because of what you did on the cross, is as far as the east is from the west. Jesus, you are the groom and we are the bride. And it is the best way in which God's word can 
describe to us, that you could describe to us the depth of your love for us. A love that reminds us of words that I always share at every, every wedding. The words that we share around this feast table. That there is no greater love than one who gives their life for a friend. Jesus said those words and gave his life to call you friend. To call you bride. Make room for Jesus. And while I want to draw you to come and do that on Wednesday, it's important that we walk this journey together of Lent. Don't leave this place without receiving the tangible sign of God's grace right now. Because we remember what Jesus came to do, and we remember right now that he already came and did it 2,000 years ago. He lived, and on the night that he was betrayed, if you open your eyes... You will be reminded as we are each and every week that he took bread with the disciples and broke it and said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, Jesus took the cup of blessing and gave thanks, gave it for all to drink and said, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. For as often as we eat this bread and as often as we drink from this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, no matter what your background, who you are, where you've been, or where you're going, imagine this as, as your pilgrimage to the river to repent. Take your hands, open them up. It's a sign of surrender, not just to receive, but to let go of whatever is in the way to make more of Jesus. And as we make more of Jesus, we pray in the way that Jesus himself teaches us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time, take out what you received when you came. If you're at home, anything you have will do. It is the presence of God in this meal. The body of Christ broken for you. blood of Christ shed for you. May the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you, keep you in his grace as we stand and sing one final song.